0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for a brand new episode of One Vision. This is your host, Theo Lau, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Bradley Lima, along with our good friend and our guest, Penny Crossman, the Executive Editor of Technology at American Banker.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is an honor, and I'm a big fan of both you and Brad. I think you guys do really interesting work, and you always have Great opinions that are well articulated. So I always like calling on you whenever I can for stories and podcasts and such.
0: Well, we do have an opinion. (laughs) A lot of things. We're not shy about sharing it. But thank you. Um, We we love we love your writing. We love your perspective on things. So um, admiration is mutual. Um, But let's turn the table um, because every time when we talk to you is is like you interviewing us or asking us, you know, um, opinions on on a certain piece of news or trends going on in financial services. But if we get to turn this around, um, can you tell us in our audience a little bit about how you got started with your journey in writing and what you're doing at uh, Source Media? I love the title. Well, I
1: originally wanted to be in the medical field. But economic realities kind of reared their ugly heads, and I just wasn't able to um, to be able to go to medical school and pursue that whole whole line of of work. So I was always interested in journalism, also, and I um, you know early on got an entry level job at a publishing company. And I was fortunate because it was a small company and there were opportunities to, uh, you know, ask for more responsibility and ask for um, writing jobs and editing and such. And so I was able to pretty quickly start writing and editing and getting more involved in the whole publication process. It was a magazine at the time. And, um, so I just continued along that track for a long time, worked at some technology publications and some financial services publications. And, um, now I'm fortunate to be at American Banker and I am editor at large. And so, um, you know, my, in my job, I do a weekly podcast, the American Banker podcast. I write articles, I work with other writers and editors on various projects. And um, I'm pretty involved in our conferences as well, helping, helping to develop them and helping to um, do some moderation and such.
2: So let's let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, editor at large, that means that you could write about just about everything and anything <laughs> under the sun. Um, <laughs> How, how does that that work in terms of sort of what some of the things you're focused on, and what are some of the favorite things that you really like to write about?
1: yeah, it's, it's it, well anything goes would not be uh, correct. <laughs> we you know we American Banker is pretty focused on the financial services industry. Our readers are people in the industry. They're fintech founders. They're government people, consultants, vendors, people in the whole that the whole financial services ecosystem. So. I can't go out and write about Lego blocks or, you know, something that's very far afield. Um, and and I, I pretty much focus on technology because that's in my background for a lot of my career. And I feel like that's where I have a lot of interest and knowledge. So, um, I you know, I write a lot about technology. I'm especially interested in how technology can help people who have economic disadvantages, which I think is something you guys... Are interested as in as well and and like you i'm also interested in some of the the generational issues that come up where um, You know you have there are young people trying to Make it and you have older people trying to save for retirement and there's some uh, Some friction between the two at times. We recently had a little Twitter debate about the phrase okay boomer and um you know, so that whole idea of how does technology change people's lives for better or for worse is kind of what I tend to focus on.
2: Are there things then that you don't get to write about that you'd like to, like if, if you could write about anything, I mean, would you write about turkey recipes going into Thanksgiving? I mean, like, what would you like to write more about? <laughs>
1: There are probably three main things that I'd write about if I could write about anything. One is animal welfare. I've always been extremely interested in that and, and very concerned about the state of factory farming in this country, the way animals are treated in these um, huge farms, and also the way that animals are treated in university and government labs I find very distressing. So if I could bring more of that to light, and – you know, help bring about stronger laws in this country around humane treatment of animals and the ability to actually enforce those laws. I would love to be able to do that. Um, The second topic I'm really interested in, especially in this past couple of years, is immigration, I think the hard stance that this administration has taken against immigrants is really not right. There has to be a sensible way to guide people to citizenship. I think you you and I have talked about this, Fred, but... you know the the way that we're conducting raids on people who have lived in this country for years and have jobs and families here, I think, is unconscionable. And also, the way we're deporting people back into dangerous situations where they're harmed or killed is also um, not what our country is about. And the third thing I would be interested in writing about is just injustice in in our justice system, our legal system in general, and you know, just bringing to light smaller cases that aren't always followed because they're not going to generate big clicks but that show some of the inequities in our system and try to try to bring about change in the way that we um, you know some people are, are advantaged and some people are not in our court system
0: you would um do you know um liz Louie? She's a co-founder of Eversave. She's also based in New York. You would love a conversation with her because <laughs> before, um, before her startup, uh, she actually uh, did a lot of work in New York um, in the district attorney's office, mm. um, looking at outer abuse, looking at domestic abuse and, and all of that. She always, every time we talked to her, she, she was actually in um, one of our podcasts, soon to be released. And um, she always had fascinating stories around, you know, what she sees in in the justice system, um, what she does in court and uh, and all of those. Always and always more that we can learn about people um, that we don't typically think about. But let's go back for a moment to when you first started, you were talking to us about some of the things you do, including um, you know, being part of a lot of the events, um, interviewing. We've been to quite a few that you were in as well. Um, And we all have our favorite moments on Mm -hmm. stage, off stage, some funny moments or some memorable special moments. Um, What are some of the ones that you can share with us?
1: (laughs) That's intriguing but I can share. Um, Well, I think my favorite moment at a conference this year was the side chat we had with Steve Wozniak, one of the founders of Apple, and I didn't do that one myself. I I just listened to it, but he just came across as a really nice guy and kind of a lovable coop, and uh, he made some interesting comments about how we may never really have artificial intelligence in this country because we don't really understand how the human brain works. He also made the point that we don't even know that our memories are in our There's no proof of that at all, and he noted that between the ages of six and ten, we lose our child autobiographical memories and their teeth. And I felt like I could just hear him talk for hours about that. He just had such a a unique perspective, and he just wasn't trying to sell anything at all. He's um, he's just he doesn't have to sell himself anymore. He doesn't have to prove himself. He's just like a natural. A person who cares about things like how ai is evolving and consequences of it
0: yeah i think jim maruz would share your sentiment he recently had him on his podcast as well and he was very very excited um, when he had a chance to, to get him on air
2: You talk about, you know, artificial intelligence uh, and lending and sort of the formation of black boxes and the way that we do credit scoring and these types of things. And you write a lot about how the technology that probably was Nick talked a, a bit about is changing financial services. And we're seeing a lot of it in fintechs. Um, do we... Kind of look at the way that larger banks are using that in sort of a different way than fintech. What's, what's your take on, on what you've been researching and sort of exploring in, in artificial intelligence and banking itself?
1: Well, my sense is that the large banks are being really cautious. And I think they have to be. They have – they're under so much scrutiny they, you know, the large banks have 90 examiners in their offices at any t- given time, any every day of the year. So they have to watch what they do very carefully. And if they, before they implement AI-based lending, they've got to prove that they have explainability, that they have thought through fair lending, and that they, you know, would not be able to violate any kind of fair lending or... Um, unsafe practice rule. They, I think, they're waiting for the regulators to come out and say this is okay. They regulators haven't really. It, it, they've sort of indicated that they're interested in innovation, they're interested in new technologies, but they haven't really come out and said, "Go ahead, this is okay." Uh, whereas, you know, some of the fintechs. Obviously, do use AI in London, and they seem to have good results, and they seem to actually make loans to people who couldn't get them normally. the um, The Finreg Lab group recently has done some studies more on the use of alternative lending, uh, alternative data in London. I'm sorry, but alternative data and AI kind of go together because AI is a way to harness these. uh, disparate sources of information in a way that a a regular, um, more old-fashioned, old-school loan program could not. And I think that studies like that that show that the use of of expanded data can produce loans to people who, you know, might have thin credit files or or no credit history but are still a, uh who, who are still creditworthy. Um, I think studies like that will help move this forward. I just think the big banks are gonna be the last to to adopt this. I think it'll happen eventually, but I think it's gonna take a lot of time.
2: You, you bring up an interesting point though about having 70 regulators in <laughs> your, your office. Um, when, when we think about FinTech and we think about sort of this way that they use technology or data, um, they have to, you know, work around data privacy laws and these type of things, but they don't really have the scrutiny that large banks do, especially, you know, sort of global banks. Um, do you think it's a level playing field?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I hate to say, it's not level, so let's put the, right, the fintechs under uh, firmer control. I mean, there, is, there are rules that the fintechs have to meet. They do have to meet state regulations. Um, you know, depending on what they're doing, they do fall under um, the CFPB in a lot of cases, and some of them do have to answer to the other regulators because they partner with traditional banks. So therefore, they're, they're sort of in the chain. So most of them are regulated to some extent. But like you said, they don't have examiners in their office all the time.
2: Well, the, the, the scrutiny, right, is a little bit yeah. different. And in a lot of ways, I think I've seen more fintechs be proactive in terms of their engagement with regulators. And so, you know, maybe that's the difference. Um, but it just seems like the the level of, you know, how many people are, are sitting in someone's office It's just so different so that it, it kind of creates a different dynamic. But uh, it seems like to me, the regulators are are actively engaged uh, in making sure that banks are safe and sound. And it's just, you guys do a great coverage of sort of the regulatory environment and it's something that is really missing in a lot of publications. So oh. just continue to, to dive deeper into that as much as you can.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Well, we have a great Washington bureau and, um, Joe Adler heads that bureau. He's got several reporters who are just on the hill. They're in congressional hearings all the time. They're meeting with regulators. They have they have a lot of um, of insight and access. And um, And our editor-in-chief now, Rob Blackwell, is also from Washington, D.C. So it's so important to everything we do. I mean, really, regulations and, and what happens in the nation's capital and technology are probably our two biggest Teams that we that we work on, and um, yeah, I, I mean, there are people who feel that the whole regulatory structure needs to be reformed and maybe streamlined a little bit because you've got so many different regulators that sometimes are a little bit overlapping and conflicting. So, you know, there probably could be some reform there. You know, and, and of course, the other thing that always happens is that the you know, the, the tech companies and the banks are always ahead of the regulators, and the regulators are always trying to catch up. And I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but uh, it's something that I think needs to be worked on. Otherwise, you know, it's just too hard for the regulators to really understand and make great decisions because they're sort of behind the eight ball. I, I know they're all working on it, though. They have, they have offices of innovation, um, try to educate their examiners. Um, We need to see more of that and quickly.
0: So talking about regulation and innovation, I think one of the things that was always talked about was around open banking, right? And where we are in the US compared to where our friends are across the pond in Europe. Um, certainly, if we look at it in the US, uh, for example, we have a few big banks um, that have exposed their APIs um, to allow others in the ecosystem to partner with them to offer something different. But truly, truly, if you look at the original spirit of open banking and where we need to be, we, I would say we're not anywhere close to where we would hope um, our friends would have been. Um, where we are right now. So do you think we'll eventually evolve to actually mean something more substantial? Is that something that's still going to be isolated to a few of the bigger banks that have the foresight to do something different?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think we are going to see it evolve. And, And you do see some community banks and regional banks, you know, willing to partner, willing to share data through APIs with aggregators and third parties. So, but I think they do it on more of a piecemeal basis. They do it where it makes sense for them, where they have, you know, say a bank and Intuit have customers in common, then it makes sense to share data with that partner. I think, I don't know that we'll ever get to where Europe is in the open banking regulation in the UK, because we already have so much competition in this country, we have at least eighty six thousand financial institutions. Eighty six hundred. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and lots of fintech challengers. And new ones come out every day. So it's not like there isn't choice, and there isn't a a, a, a robust marketplace already. I think you know what we're a lot of what we're seeing is sort of a reaction to this grassroots movement where there was a lot of screen scraping among companies like Mint, PFM companies, and the um, robo-advisors, and you know companies that want to do things with your bank data that, that make it useful to you. And the screen scraping is something the banks vehemently dislike. They feel like it's insecure. They're getting all these uh, robo-hits on their servers, and then it's harder to tell what's fraud and what's real, so um, they've, they've sort of acquiesced to some of the uh, data sharing because it was happening anyway, and they wanted to do it in a more secure way and with more, a little with some control and rules around who's liable for what and so forth, um, and then I think there, you know, there are certain banks that are going to take up this idea of open banking, like BBVA. Is, is proactive about wanting to find partners to um, you know say offer on-demand loans through um, a white labeling kind of thing um, that they're proactive about being willing to share their data share banking as a service to others and they don't care if their name is on it i don't know how many banks are going to take that route i think some will but i think a lot of them will only share as much as they have to
0: we would like to give a mention to our creative partner tremendousness tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking information design and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations products and processes learn more at www. Tremendo.us.
2: Part of it, I think, is, is going to be how large an institution can sort of um, change their business model to allow for more sharing of data and allow for sort of more openness. And I think when you look at the global model, if, if you see you know, an open banking and open data sharing movement sort of starting in Europe, I think it's because they realize that the most sort of susceptible to large tech companies coming in, And you know, each, each market in Europe has four or five different banks, um, much like our own that sort of dominate. I think the, the top six banks are somewhere um, north of 70% on the lending side and, Um, closer to 80% on the deposit side, even though we do have that sort of near 9,000 institution uh, sort of market here. When when you think about that business model and you think about, you know, who the survivors are going to be, you guys write about things like post offices becoming a place where, you know, a a more inclusive banking market might uh, sort of arise because of the number of locations. But as we move further and further digital, you know, who's, who's going to be standing? You know, who who's American Banker going to actually write about in 15 or 20 years if there's only like five banks and there's like just tech companies?
1: Well, yeah, that's a big question. I mean, certainly life is getting harder for the very small banks and even the medium-sized banks. We haven't seen a lot of mergers lately, as I think, uh, you know, companies realize they've got to achieve economies of scale and you know, our current – we've had a thin, low-margin uh, interest rate environment for a while, which is tough on a lot of traditional banks. So, you know, I think we're going to continue to see that kind of consolidation and probably the big banks getting bigger with some, you know, small niche, smaller niche uh, challenger banks and, you know, traditional banks continuing to, to uh, grow. And then, of course, um, I didn't mention this before, but obviously you have companies like Apple and Google getting deeper into financial services and, you know, Google working with Citi and Stanford Credit Union um, and Apple working with Goldman Sachs. You know, they are getting a little deeper into financial services. so They're certainly going to be a force to be reckoned with. Um, I guess if I had to predict, I think... I think you will continue to see small communities lose their bank branches. Unfortunately, um, you know, as the big branch, big banks gobble up more of the smaller banks. I think that uh, the big banks kind of go back and forth on their branch strategy, though. You know, sometimes they're cut, cutting back, sometimes they're they're uh, reinvesting in the branches. There's still, for for some things, there's still value to having a face-to-face interaction with a human being Um, Chase opened a branch its first branch in Alabama today Um, so sometimes they they do see some opportunity with that so I don't think branches are going away immediately but certainly this trend toward more adoption of digital banking will continue so if I had to guess I think we'll just see most people do a lot of their banking on their mobile phone and online And then just have to drive farther if they want to do something more complicated and meet with a human being. Um, And, of course, the affluent neighborhoods will probably keep their branches.
2: Well, but that's the thing, right? So, So they've been building a lot more chase branches in neighborhoods where they're trying to hoover up deposits. And and the competition, especially in California, really came about when Chase, you know, took over WAMU after the Great Recession sort of kicked in and all sorts of things have changed. The other, you know, stat I saw this week is that since 2006, more than 2,000 banks have disappeared. And when you look at that long tail of banks that are sort of under 100 or under 150 million, they're all... In smaller communities, and that's going to be a challenge going forward. Is how do people that don't traditionally have more than just sort of transactional banking services ever really get served well by this industry? Which is why I think you know the articles around post office, post office banking, or at least locational banking that is sort of ever present um, still kind of matters. And and when you go into a community that. You know, has been sort of decimated by Walmart popping up and taking out you know six or seven stores on a main street. This is what's happening in banking today. It's 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 a very interesting parallel.
1: Yeah, I mean, as a human being, I have to say I agree with you, (laughs) and I think that post office banking is not a bad idea. I just think it's such a competitive world that I just think the big banks will figure out how to keep people in their fold, the way they've done so successfully up to now. I mean, they, they have managed with just pretty decent technology to, to grow their market share, um, even though they're not offering much in the way of uh, deposit, uh, interest rates, and so forth. Um, so how will people get served? I think people will just have to accept the digital experience and uh deal with people on the phone um i just think eventually we're just not people just aren't going to have access to the in-person uh service that they would want you know we're also seeing video banking continue you know bank of america has some branches that are just kiosks with videos or or screens with um people they can talk to via video so we're seeing more of that sort of centralized call center where people talk or, um, you know, FaceTime uh, with your customers that way.
0: Penny, do you know a lot of those terminals, they're only operational during banker's hours? Uh-huh. That was what I found funny. Um, we have one uh, close by us that they opened up, a really small kiosk, like you said, mm-hmm. a small little um, office space and uh, two terminals in there and um, outside it had a, uh, hours of when you can actually teleconference a banker for your needs and it was only available Monday through Friday. <laughs> and and it, it, that's the sort of irony of it, right? You think about technology, that should not be a limiting factor, especially as distributed as a lot of our workforces, you compare it to a call center, And rightfully so. You have people around different time zones. Why are we limiting access to that digitally only via normal working hours on that particular location? I I think that's something that it just makes no sense at all.
1: Yeah, that's a, I think somebody messed up on that one. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know if that's always true. I feel like some of them have some expanded hours, but I agree. They're probably not 24-7. I haven't really analyzed it, but um,
0: that's a really good point. It's just interesting. It's, it's like what you know we've always talked about is when you introduce a new medium, a new way of interacting with customers and consumers, you don't take the functions that you currently have right now and port it to a different medium and say, here you go, copy and paste. I'm interacting with you a different way, but this is exactly how we had done it all the other times. We're just going to repeat it without thinking through, how can we expand that and create a different value for consumers, create a different relationship with consumers using that technology? I think we, we have ways to go.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're trying to start to do that a little bit with the AI chatbot plots like Erica, you know, that are available 24 um, 7. I haven't actually tried Erica myself, but, and, and I believe it's still being used for fairly basic things right now but
2: you know inevitably
1: these bots will get better over time what do you guys think do you think eventually we'll be communicating through bots like erica to get stuff done
0: yeah i think the
2: yeah, but they're, they're going to get smarter and smarter, right? And I think eventually, you know, it's going to be like the movie Her or like other places where it's like this constant communication ad nauseum. I, I, like anything else in social and banking, it's people really just don't want to talk about their money. It's like they don't want to wake up and have somebody tell them what they did yesterday and, you know, maybe bigger things or, or how money relates to everything else in their life. I think that's really kind of where it's going to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that's one concern. But I think, you know, goes back to more basic from a technology perspective. It's, it's a joke we always have, right? I don't need to talk to a thing to find out how much money I spent on Starbucks last month. That is not useful to me, right? What will be useful is through conversations, you can help me figure out where I need to get to from point A to point B. What? Can I do with everything that I have? With everything you know about me, how can you help me make better decisions? Things that are more contextual, things that are more complex.
2: Okay, if, so so along those lines, yeah. If 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 your bank bot woke up and like started talking to you, and you're having a conversation, and it says, "Okay, well you're a little short, you know, this week, this day, this month, whatever." Um, how are you going to put the turkey on the table? You know, we're we're just I don't eat to- turkey. Okay, well, okay, (laughs) duck or whatever, right? So it's just how are you going to be able to put, you know, the the large bird of choice on the table or your, you know, vegan turducken or whatever it is that you're gonna put? Those are the kind of things that again we're seeing in large super apps and different sort of embedded commerce with banking is that it's not banking that's interesting, it's your life that's interesting and Mm -hmm. how bank sort of fills around it. And so let's start having those kind of conversations in a bot. That would make something really tie into what we're doing on a daily basis.
0: Absolutely agree. But if you ask my kids, though, they would tell you that the machines that we have at home right now are still not smart. We have all three of them. And every day we are so frustrated. Either they cannot understand what they were asking for or the answers they provide are absolutely not relevant. Based on Wikipedia, XYZ. Like, okay, (laughs) tell me as what I would as a person conversing to a machine that pretends to be a person how would you answer that right I think we have ways to go um but you know I see the premise of it um we like the technology obviously because it's more intuitive to to converse um but I don't think we're quite there yet and we can go back to the bird
2: later but. this is totally totally <laughs> off subject but it's like the other day I, I asked Alexa something and a tablet and the device on counter sort of answered back. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want both of you. So I actually walked up <laughs> to the Alexa with screen and I whispered to it. I had no idea that Alexa whispers back. If you whisper. To it. Did you? <laughs>
0: that sounds creepy.
2: It, it was super creepy. <laughs> Oh, my
0: God. <laughs> Did you turn Alexa off now? Because it might be whispering back to you.
2: It might be whispering right now. Say, Alexa, tell me about American Banker.
0: <laughs> so, Alexa, tell me about OK Boomer Penny. That's something that is just killing me, um, you know, because we, we converse on and off, uh, online, offline. Um, apparently this is not something new. Um, I learned something new the other day that this thing has been going on for a while. It's just that social media on the Twitter and LinkedIn side of it took a little while to catch up. But I I have, and I still see that trending, which kills me. I, I have a little bit of a hard time of, I, I, I think a lot of this stems from the fact that the younger generation are probably a little bit upset with current economic conditions, the fact that they're graduating with student loans and the fact that they cannot afford a house, which, by the way, we got told a couple of years ago that millennials don't like houses. But now all of a (laughs) a sudden, of course, they're like, "Whoa, we can't afford it. Um, We got told now, you know, because of the boomers, they cannot afford cars. But we were told that they like the experience of not owning a car that's, you know, regardless. A lot of that, it almost feels like, they are upset with things in life and we need to find someone to blame and boomers tend to be there to which I have two reaction. One is I am a gen X. I always feel like I'm just invisible because it's always <laughs> about boomers and millennials, nothing about us, which is fine. <laughs> um, but the second is it, what is going on in here?
1: Well, yeah, i am am a, I'm a gen X too. We're like the middle child just, just behaves itself more or less. Uh, yeah, I mean it's interesting debate. You know, I I tweeted about it the other day, as as you know, and you kindly replied, and then and then I regretted tweeting about it because I hadn't heard that much about it. I I saw the clip of the uh, New Zealand congresswoman, I guess, who who said it, and then
0: oh, and she snapped back, yes,
1: yes, and then someone said it in a meeting that I had the other day, and I just kind of bristled at it, and I didn't know the backstory, and I didn't really. Have that frame of reference that that it's like this frustration that Gen Z and Millennials have But to me, I just feel like yes Everyone's every every generation is frustrated with the generation before But I in my personal opinion We need to have civilized conversations in this country and you can disagree with somebody you can have a totally different opinion and think the other person is wrong but you can still be courteous to that person, and and to me, calling someone a meme is is just not courteous. It's not nice. And also, I do think there's a stigma in this country against being over a certain age, and I think it's misguided because everyone's going to get over a certain age. <laughs> so it's a little bit, uh, it, it's a little bit imprudent to be calling names on people that are you know 10 or 20 years older because that's going to be you in the not too distant future and and, and i guess they're they're talking about certain things that this generation did
2: wow pretty soon we're going to have ok gen x or something equivalent
1: right i guess yeah
2: there's just too few of us, I think, to ever really matter. And I think that's the whole thing about a generation is that we're really bitter about that.
0: You're whispering again. But I agree with you, though, Penny. I, I posted an article from New York Times uh, recently when that was how I found out about OK Boomer because it caught me off guard. And I got 46,000 views wow. on that post, along with a lot of very angry comments. Um, that was the first time when I realized, oh my goodness, this is real. People are very, very angry and they want someone, I don't know, casting a blame on us is a good word, but, um, and I agree with you, it's, it's not helping, right? Generation rift is not something that's new. I think that's existed for a long time. We always say, you know, there's a generation gap, our parents, our grandparents don't understand us, et cetera, et cetera, but only names is not a way to solve the difference, is not a way to bring a dialogue to the table because we need to unite, not divide. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where I have a lot of trouble with: is people are okay with it and people spread it, and they think it's funny. But-
1: exactly, and then this is why you're such a master at social media. And I mean, you you, you just always knock it out of the park. Well, both of you, Brad and Theo, with your with your tweets and your other posts, you just really know how to. Put things well and strike a nerve and um, you know kind of tap into things that people care about so um, I think you could give a class on that (laughs) teach us all how to how to master twitter
0: I so think boring. Brad is the, um, he is the uh, godfather in here, though. He would like to tell to... people that he's been around way longer oh, yes, before so any you,
2: of us. You know that. what? When you say that, it makes me think of OK Boomer. You know, really? <laughs> I, I don't go around telling. Like, maybe I told you a few times and you just, you know, you've heard it too many times. So just go to unconventionalventures.com. <laughs> Your class is on social media. We, um, anyway. Um, That's
0: funny. But I've been telling people, like, I am very close to 50. And I cannot wait to actually get on stage and tell people, yep, I am 50, because I always get a kick out from how people react and gasp when (laughs) I tell them how old I am. I'm like, seriously, we all get older. This is not like a strange phenomenon.
1: The thing is, you look 23. So I think that's why people are shocked, because you just don't age at all.
2: don't don't feed
1: don't feed the the beast (laughs) well that's genetics or face cream or so i don't know what it is
0: but it must be lack of sleep because i don't (laughs) (laughs) um but on on the serious note though um we i think there are a lot of challenges in our society right it's um from from a societal perspective, you talked about injustices. Um, we talked about immigration. We talk about um, economic gaps between different demographics. We talk about um, social mobility. Those are some of the things that you know, or, or living wage, um, evolve, evolving gig economy workers and their welfare, and all of those things. So there's not lack of challenges and changes that's going on in our society. Um, and in relation to, to that, is, it's media consumption, right? How people are changing the way they consume media, how people are changing the way they express their opinions, what they look at and where they post and all of that. Um, how do you see Source Media, American Banker, being, being, I would say, a cornerstone of the financial services industry when it comes to content reporting and all of that? How do you see all of that and how, how your team evolves? To reflect those changes,
1: yeah. Well, we we are trying. (laughs) We thank you. We, um, you know, as as our editor in chief, Rob Blackwell said recently, now the deadline is. You know, we used to have deadlines
2: that were daily,
1: so you know, certain there there'd be like a noon deadline and a four o'clock deadline. Uh, But he said, now the deadline is all the time because people expect you to have a story instantly. And you know, one of our challenges is we like to be in depth, but we also want to be quick. So it's there's always that balance of you know, do you do you wait and try to find three other people to talk to, or or get it, you know much more detail, or do you just go with the story and then do a follow up later? Um, so, so time is one thing that that we've had to adjust to. There's a lot more competition than there used to be, so. You know, we try to pick our spots, the places where we feel we have expertise and um, and strengths. Um, we're trying to, you know, we gave up our, our paper print edition about five years ago. So we're all online and mobile. And we're, we're uh, working on our mobile app to make that more appealing, more user-friendly, Um easier to use uh, we're working on our newsletters are always trying to figure out a way to you know get people the content that's relevant to them without bombarding them with uh newsletters um you know like everybody we constantly work on our seo strategy because you know we do we do have to keep our page views up and so um you know you want google to notice you um, but Google you know, changes its algorithms all the time. So uh, you know, we just do our best to try to provide strong content, try to uh, give people the types of stories that they seem to like. You know, we, we watch the high-performing stories pretty closely, and if something seems to be doing really well, then we make sure to have some follow-up stories. Um, you know, Rob and, and the section editors really work hard on that um so we basically just try to you know we try to just be ourselves and kind of do what we did we've always done but try to do it quicker and with better graphics uh with with um you know insights um with with people we have a lot of staff that have been here for a long time so they they've learned a lot over the years uh so, and, and you know we have Sources that we've known for years, so so in a way things haven't changed, but in a way they have. If you know what I mean, it's like our our strength is still what we've always done, you know, except for obviously adding on new content. You know, we write about fintechs much more than we used to. We write about um, tech companies getting to financial services more than they used to because they didn't used to. Um, but, but certain things, certain core values around trying to produce good stories, trying to have, uh, trying to be unbiased, trying to have creditable sources—those things don't really change.
0: Yeah, it's like um, putting together a uh, holiday meal. And you might have different birds, different condiments, but as long as you have good friends, good conversation, and good food, then that's the gist of it. (laughs) I'm trying to borrow Brad's theme of Turkey.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I'm going to segue this a little bit, though. I mean, you, you just, when you talk about the business and how it's changed, you know, you guys have had a great proving ground um, or in training ground for writers that have sort of gone on to other publications. And, and I would say, you know, many of the folks that have left, I haven't seen, you know, their words as much as when I did when they were in America banker and the, the sections that you guys do around technology, the sections that you do around sort of the regulatory environment and how that's changing the women in banking section, which is, you know, excellent in terms of not just sort of weekly reporting about what's been happening, but the larger issues at play and the awards um, dinner that you guys have. I think there's a lot of things that you guys do with your events, with the podcast that really, I think, tie everything together. Um, Thank you. Since 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 a lot of you know people have sort of come in, stayed there for many, many years and then gone on to other publications, is there something that you would like to write in a different publication, whether it's, you know, a food magazine with your turkey recipes, <laughs> um, th- th- what would you like to write about that, that you don't get to now? Because we talked a little bit about that earlier, but, you know, either a topic or an interview or like, what are some of the things you want to tap into?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I should never do a turkey recipe because I'm horrible at cooking turkey. So that would be really misguiding anybody who read that. but um, I. You know, my dream publication would be the New York Times. I just have so much respect for what they do and for the things they take on and the, the courage that they've shown, especially over the last couple of years. Um, you know, my, my, if I could write an article for anyone on anything, it would probably be some kind of expose of factory farming for the New York Times. I think it's something that doesn't get covered a lot. And I think if it was in
0: New York Times, people would read it. And uh, that would be sort of the, the fantasy. Well, both Brad and I, are, um, we have subscriptions for New York Times, so we'll definitely be reading it. But regardless, we are big fans of... Um, of of what you do and your work, we're also big fans of American bankers. We we follow that uh, very closely, and uh, it's been a fun conversation. Hope it's been fun for you. We uh, chit chatted and segues, but um, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining us thank today. You. Thank, thank you. Thank
1: you. You guys are awesome. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much.